Welcome to Sober Solutions. We are a weekly recovery podcast, not affiliated with any particular 12-step or recovery program. However, you may hear us mention them. My name is Jason, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Ben. I'm an alcoholic and addict. And welcome back to Sober Solutions. Tonight is episode eight. This is a two-part series. We're going to be talking about getting into treatment. And we're very excited for our guest tonight, Dan O. Uh, we actually met Dan while we were in rehab together. Um, we're very excited to have him on the show. Good to see you, Dan. Good to be here, guys. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, sure. So um, the whole program was honestly a huge surprise to me, right? Uh, for our listeners, I'm actually 20 years old. I got into treatment when I was 19. Um, so I can't technically have a legal drink. I'm an alcoholic who can't have a legal drink, which is always cool. Um, so I started drinking, honestly, early on, probably around 13, 14 years old, but it was never anything that uh, kind of took off immediately. Sometimes you'll hear people who will have their first drink and they knew right away. That wasn't the case with me, right? The case with me was more, it was a gradual response to dealing with emotions. Um, Around 14, I got into a pretty prestigious high school, so a lot of pressure was put on me from the get-go, right? But with that, I was ready for it. I felt like I was up to the responsibilities that were to be had and the academic rigor that was going to ensue from that. Um, But I may have spoken too soon because gradually as time moved on, um, I started finding myself going more and more to things that weren't uh, what I had previously done. So then around 16 or 17, I started drinking to deal with my emotions. Uh, That was the first time I discovered that alcohol could actually numb and mute a lot of the things that I was feeling and make myself more uh, available to the people around me, right? Make myself feel more confident. I was able to do more things because at night I could just fall into oblivion. I could fall asleep happily, no anxiety, no depression, nothing like that. So I was a functioning alcoholic for a while. Um, and that continued, you know, once I got my license, I was able to have uh, a means of getting it right. So I was able to go to and from the liquor store. I was able to keep the alcohol in my car um, and nobody ever saw an issue with me. Uh, I never had any problems regarding my particular drinking because I never went out of hand. Um, I never wanted anyone to know what I was doing because that would mean I had to stop. Uh, that's a good alcoholic. That's what I do. So as time progressed, um, it just got worse and worse. Uh, I started to slowly go off kilter when it came to different aspects of my life, whether that was grades, relationships, jobs. Um, It didn't really matter. Kind of everything began to be a means towards alcohol. That was the only reason why I was continuing to do the things that I was doing. Um, And I think it's important to mention that growing up, I actually had a great relationship with God. Um, I went to a Catholic school all through grade school. You know, once I got to high school, I learned the Bible in Latin. Like I'm talking hardcore Catholic. That's what I was from day one. Um, But I found myself continuously questioning my religion, right? Like I always kind of wondered if this was the path that I was designed to take. Um, And uh, the more I questioned it and the more alcohol that was involved, the more I became, you know, the struggling agnostic, as our program says, right? We agnostics. Um, I found myself becoming more categorized by that. Uh, and from there, my image of God became very distasteful, a lot of disdain toward God. You know, why would you give me this? Why, why would this happen to me if there was a God who was all loving? 
what's the point of all of that? So my image of God was very skewed as my drinking progressed. Um, however, you know, that ultimately ended to the point where I didn't have a view of God at all, right? The, the term God to me became like poison and like I wanted to recoil from it and I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, so moving along, when I finally got to college, I was able to get into a pretty good college because of my, you know, abilities academically. And I was able to get some money from college, but what's supposed to be this, this joyous and fun occasion, you know, choosing a college because I had, I had a lot of options wasn't for me. Um, I essentially kind of just picked one and went with it, right? That's, that was the ultimate goal of mine because I didn't want my parents to spend any money on me. Um, because I had this belief that I had a timetable or, um, what's the word? One of those, uh, sand, a sand clock or something like that. Right. Uh, and my time was to run out at age 25. That was my full belief, true belief. Um, I had that ingrained in my head since I was 16 years old. Um, you know, and I had come to make everyone around me believe that I was suffering from things I wasn't suffering from. Uh, this depression, anxiety, and I myself believed it. That's why I was so good at it. Um, but, you know, people always say when you mix fire with fire, it doesn't put it out. If you mix depression with a depressant, it's not exactly going to get rid of it. Um, and that's what I was doing, right? That's what I continued to do over and over again, uh, meeting kind of the criteria for insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Um, but, you know, once I got to college, I thought this was going to be my new start. Um, this was going to be my opportunity to reinvent myself. Uh, I was going to be able to possibly stop drinking, just focus on myself, focus on grades, focus on school, focus on girls. I mean, kind of anything else besides drinking. Um, but, you know, independence at the time wasn't exactly something that was great for me. Because now, instead of trying to hide my drinking, I didn't have to. It was just a part of the, the atmosphere and the life that I had been thrown into. Um, so I... You know, if my drinking was bad in high school, it propelled tremendously by the time I got to college. I, you know, I was drinking every single day, continuously throughout the day. Um, when I wasn't drinking, I started to get the DTs, right? I started to get those shakes in the morning. I started to get, uh, you know, that, that agitation, that fogginess. And the only time I felt clear was when I was drinking. Um, and it was something that I can honestly say I, I don't understand how my maintained drinking still propelled me to get good grades still and my social life was great my family life was great everything in my life still seemed good at the time um and then finally towards the end of uh, my freshman year in college you know the whole pandemic started so for me to get sent home right away that was okay you know it's not a big deal all i know is my home environment i know a couple of things there i know the liquor stores that'll sell to me again i'm 19 years old um I knew I was comfortable, right? And I was actually happy to get home because I didn't have to constantly put on a show for the people around me in my dorm. But what that did allow me to do was isolate a lot more. And as we've come to know in the program, isolation can be one hell of a thing, man. Uh, you know, you get in your head, you start thinking about all the things that you've done wrong, that you're continuing to do wrong, how you want to change. And that causes you to drink. Um, continually kind of sitting in your shit will cause you to drink. Um, so when that started happening to me, right, that was like the fuse that someone lit and a bomb went off. Um, my drinking propelled, if it was bad before, it was completely unmanageable at this point. Um, I drank continuously from the beginning of March until about halfway through August. 
Um, and I really don't remember a whole lot of that time, which is unfortunate because I had the opportunity to spend time with my family. I was able to, you know, accomplish these great things at home, actually build a relationship. And instead I just drank, I missed all of that. Um, you know, some people say it's a blessing because I missed off quarantine. You know, I tend to agree with them. Like if, if this is going to happen, this wasn't the worst time. Um, but I also view it as a blessing because had this not happened, I could have kept drinking for years. Uh, I could have been out there for another 10, 12 years without knowing that this is a disease and the problems that ensue. So it got to the point where uh, in mid-August, I, I had attempted to take my own life because I couldn't take the drinking anymore. I couldn't take this, this continuous pattern of destruction that was overcoming me. Um, and of course, you know, I didn't end up dying. I ended up going to Seabrook in South Jersey where I met the wonderful people on this podcast. And from there, I kind of just jumped right into the work, right? It was from there where I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was actually introduced to the fact that other people suffer from the disease I suffer from. I'm not crazy. Uh, I'm not alone. And this was the first experience I truly had with God. Because I sat in a room and I remember there was, a, there was an old timer at the facility. You guys remember Gary. Um, first time I ever got breakfast at this place, right? I'm shaking, I'm going through DTEs, I'm shitting my pants, I'm throwing up, every, everything you can imagine. And I see Gary, this quiet little old guy, couldn't be more than 90 pounds. He's sitting at the table all alone and, you know, it's early, I didn't sleep at all. So I go over and I sit next to him, I start talking with him. He's this quiet, gentle guy, but the stories he would tell were unbelievable. Like, I mean, this guy lived 50 lives and having that first initial, um, contact with somebody who suffered from my same disease was what sparked me to continue to, you know, have hope. And that's what I didn't have for so long. I didn't have any hope. Um, but also there was the introduction of the God theory and the fact that, you know, I can believe in a God that works for me, right? It doesn't have to be any preconceived notion of what God is for any religion. It's just the idea that the God that works for me might not work for the guy sitting across from me. But if he works for me, I'm going to continue to pray to him and the power that's greater than myself. And then from there, I'll be able to put faith in something that's bigger than me. And by doing that, that stress, because I couldn't stop drinking on my own. But my original God was really Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, G.O.D. group of drunks. Like that's kind of that was my God. Um, and then from there, I started to learn and develop relationships. And it's just been an incredible journey and a life changing journey. Um, you know, and I wouldn't have it any other way. They say life beyond your wildest dreams, and I'm living that. Like, this is incredible. So I didn't know if you wanted to get me to get into my sobriety at all, but um, yeah, that's my story. Awesome story, Dan. Awesome story. It's really great to hear you. You sound so much better from the time that I met you. Um, you know, and one thing that I know about you now, what you're doing now is that you're an admissions director uh, for rehab. Um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what that job is, what you do, and how you help people that are coming into recovery? Yeah, sure. So I actually work as an admissions director for facilities all over the country. Um, what I am is I'm kind of a medium to introduce people who might not know about recovery to different options they have available to them, right? Um, and in this field, I get calls from people of all different walks of life, right? You have the homeless guy on the side of Kensington, and then you have the rich guy in the mansion in Kentucky, and both people are still struggling from the same thing. 
Um, so what I'm actually able to do is provide them with different options that fit, you know, their financial current situation, um, their family life, their location, whatever it may be, I'm able to kind of figure that out and then find locations that work best for them. Um, you know, what I usually do, right, is if I'm meeting a client for the first time, I'll try to get their story and then speak with the parents, the brothers, the fiancés, people like that, because then I'll get all different angles of the story and kind of really get a bigger picture idea of what's going on. And then from there, I'm able to document everything and reach out to different facilities and get in contact with them so a possible admission may happen. Um, ideally, I want to admit as many people as possible, uh, but as we know, you know, treatment centers can be a little stingy when it comes to money. So I do my best to keep the prices absolutely as accessible for everyone as possible. Um, and, you know, also if somebody doesn't have insurance or doesn't have any money, I still want to make sure that they have options for uh, recovery, right? Because everybody should be entitled to get recovery. Um, and if, you know, there's a bunch of different factors that go into it, whether that be mental health, um, whether that be serious family issues, domestic abuse, things like that. All of these things play a factor into my decision on where I'm uh, going to recommend they go. Uh, and then the second part is just getting them there, right? Because I don't think I've come across someone yet who hasn't put up at least a little bit of a fight to get into treatment. But then, you know, 30 days later, I get the call, oh my God, you saved my life. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll take the apology later. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet. I know I was like that, you know, kicking and screaming on my way in, if not outwardly, internally. Um, and then really loving life as I was walking out because I was alive. You know, I, I wasn't dead inside anymore. And I was walking out into uh, this new opportunity to live a new life, which has grown exponentially since seeing you in Seabrook. Um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, the interactions that you have. You know, not not breaking anyone's anonymity or or identifying anyone specifically, but what are those interactions like? Are they with the client? Are they are people calling in for the client? How how does that work? What does that sound like? Yeah, sure. So obviously, you know, I'm glad you mentioned like the anonymity of the whole thing, right? Because that's a huge part of uh, building confidence in the people who call. So a lot of times, you'll actually see the individual call themselves, right? And That'll be like the morning after a, a drunken night or a bender or something like that. They'll come, they'll get that clarity and that gift of desperation. And from there, um, I'm able to work with them, right? Because they're going to be open and honest. They're going to talk to me. They're going to tell me what's going on. They're not going to hesitate when I make recommendations. They're going to do whatever it takes I'm willing to do. And those are the ideal clients because those are the people who are ready. Like they have gone through this enough times. They've been to treatment enough times. They're finally ready to actually get this recovery going. Um, the other times I'll usually get calls from, like I said before, like the fiancés, the boyfriends, the girlfriends, the kids, uh, a lot of times parents, you know, because uh, I don't know if you guys know how insurance works, but if an individual is under 26 years old and the parents have insurance, then they're able to go under their parents' insurance. Um, the second they turn 27, that's cut off. So parents will know this and they'll recognize this and they'll say, this is the perfect time to get them treatment. This is the perfect time to get them help. And then when I get the kid on the phone, he doesn't want anything to do with it. You know, I'm just smoking weed. I'm just doing this. Yeah. Okay. Like I know, you know, you don't want to tell me anything. I understand. But the second that I identify myself as a recovering addict alcoholic, they're open to me. They're able to talk to me. They're able to feel like somebody gets them and understands them, which a lot of times you won't see when it comes to treatment. You know, if you talk to somebody, for example, who isn't in recovery, 
um, and they're trying to understand you, they're trying to break you down. It's a lot more difficult because that you don't feel that they're going to have the same experience and the same advice that someone in recovery would have. Um, so once I mentioned that, whether that be to the parents who aren't struggling or have nothing going on, um, or the people who are, that's where I see the most trust occur. So definitely I would say the individuals call the most, but you do get a lot of calls from the parents and from the other people who, who are just worried about whoever's trying to go to treatment. I remember the first time I went to treatment, my wife actually called a bunch of recruiters. I know you're not necessarily a recruiter. Um, this is when I really had no knowledge about rehab mm -hmm. and we didn't either, uh, which they did educate us. But what are the different, I guess, how is it different when you talk to the parents? So when a parent or loved one or aunt or uncle, whoever, not the individual is calling, how does that conversation differentiate from actually talking to the person that's struggling? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times when I'm talking to the parents of an individual, or like you said, you know, your wife, like I, if I was talking to her, I would approach this to try and initially calm the person down. Because um, when they get on the phone, you know, there's that initial super worried, they're going to die. There's all these things happening. I read about this online. I think the worst invention of all time was online because you know you hear all these horror stories and immediately you think all of those things are going to happen to your loved one so when it comes to people calling for someone else the first thing that i do is i try to calm them down i try to explain the situation and i try to make sure that they know that i'm going to do everything i can to help the person or you know their loved one um so that's kind of the way that i approach that and then gradually as things move on not a lot can be done with the loved one other than just the name, the number, the date of birth, like information wise. But in order to really get someone into treatment, I need to speak to the individual directly. Um, I need to be able to kind of break them down, understand what's really been going on because as addicts and alcoholics, we understand that a lot of times we're not gonna tell people what's really going on. Um, no one's really gonna see the full picture of our run. It's, it's us who has to look in the mirror and know that. So when I talk to somebody who isn't the loved one, who's the person calling on behalf of themselves, I'm a lot more um, upfront with them, right? Like I tell them immediately, hey, I'm actually in recovery as well. I know what you're going through and I wanna do everything I can to help you today. Now, if I see, you know, no one's ever gonna tell the real amount of what they're using or drinking. So after the first sale, say like, okay, is that, you know, is that really how much you're drinking? And you won't believe how many times I'll be like, well, actually, you know, it's not really how much I'm doing, I'm doing way more. And then they'll drop five different drugs. So I'm like, okay, now we're talking. Now we're actually finding out what's going on. Um, but when it comes to those people, I'm a lot more personal, right? I'm a lot more personable. I try to make them feel as comfortable as possible um, because I understand where they're at and I understand how vulnerable they are at this moment. And I don't want them to get scared and I don't want them to think that um, they're crazy or that the world's against them or anything like that. My goal is just to ensure them that I can get them somewhere safe and I can get them treatment. Um, so that's kind of the difference between the two. But again, I definitely see the uh, the importance of both kind of directions going into a call. Um, because if somebody gets on the phone and they're super angry right away because, you know, their husband was on another bender and they don't understand, my job is to say, hey, this happens. You know, this isn't uncommon. Um, let me do everything I can to help your husband. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point because until someone surrenders or they have some sort of external reason or even a consequence. I mean, there's 
there's only so much you can do with the parents or somebody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really up to that individual, whether he's forced, he or she is forced to, or chooses to, you know, all, all of us, I'm sure our parents and loved ones have said, Hey, you need to get help. And we just like brushed it off, mm -hmm. but it's really up to us or, you know, someone, some people are forced to get into. So that's a good point. You can't really do much with the parents and that's, that's good to know. I mean, that's kind of calming in a sense. It, it's, it stinks when you're in that state, but if you can realize that there's not that much you can do other than separate yourself from that situation, you know, that's the best thing that you can do sometimes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, like you said, it's, it's about the willingness because if they don't have the willingness, nothing's going to get done. Um, nobody can walk into treatment for the person. Right. And you said like forced and things like that, that happens. Um, but our goal is sobriety. At the end of the day, we want to see these people get better. We don't want to see them get in because they have to. We want to see them get in because it's possible for them to get help. And we want them to know that. And we want them to finally come to the realization that there are better ways to live than continuing this you know, destructive path that they're on. Um, so yeah, when it does come to, to the loved ones and especially the friends, there's not a whole lot I can do there without speaking to the people directly. You know, Dan, it is so good to, I'm, I'm just kind of marveling listening to you because I remember you coming into rehab and, and seeing you so mature, like you're 20 and you feel more mature. I, you see more mature than I feel. And, and so, you know, I, I, I want to know, you know, first, what got you into rehab in the first place? Um, so honestly, it came down to, I was ready. You know, I had the willingness. I had, I had drank plenty. I drank my fair share. Um, but I genuinely couldn't accept the fact that this was the way it had to be. Um, so I denied it for so long. And having, I, I would even go to an AA meeting here or there and then leave because there was people with 30 years of sobriety and say, that's never going to happen and immediately start drinking again. Um, so that's kind of, it was uh, one event in particular, me, you know, my attempt that put me in rehab, but there was so much leading up to it, you know, those slip ups that we see. Uh, and of course, I was 19 years old, so I didn't exactly have, you know, the wife, the kids, I didn't really have a whole lot of responsibilities at home, other than just getting better. Um, so it was really kind of perfect timing. Um, God, God has no coincidences, but um, what ultimately got me into treatment was my parents, right? And them just being up front with me and saying, like, we don't recognize you anymore. We don't know who you are anymore. And once I heard that, um, I was ready. I mean, I, I didn't want to continue to be this person anymore. So that jump, that leap of faith uh, changed my life and it saved my life because had I kept doing what I was doing, I would not be here. Um, so definitely, you know, when I bring that, that experience with me, when I'm talking to people on the phone and I, and I remember where I was at, um, I think it definitely helps me, you know, kind of persevere through the tough clients, through the tough, uh, individuals and say, Hey, you know, I was where you're at. I want to see you get better. You're going to get better. That's awesome. You know, one of the things you mentioned there, you know, again, is, is that you're 20 years old. And again, something that I marveled at in rehab, you were 19. 
that kind of blew my mind. And and so what is it like, you know, even in the pandemic, but what what is it like for you as a 20 year old to be in recovery? And, and, you know, it sounds like you've come to this realization for yourself that this is how it's going to be, you know, as long as you want to maintain a sober and healthy life. So what is that like as a 20 year old, you know, not kid, but, you know, person? So I can tell you actually a funny story on my 20th birthday, I was chairing an AA meeting, you know, I don't know how many guys can say that, but, um, that's great. That's amazing. It's, it's crazy. And, uh, when I just got out of Seabrook, the first thing they said is hit a meeting and get a sponsor. I was like, all right, shit, I'm on my own. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and do this. So I get out of Seabrook, I get home, I immediately hit a meeting and I raised my hand and, you know, I said, Hey, I'm new to this. I don't really know how to do this, but I need a temporary sponsor. Is there anything you guys can do for me? Um, so after the meeting, this guy comes up to me and he says, look, I don't do that temporary sponsorship. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you three questions. I'm going to tell you where I'm at and I'm going to tell you to come to a commitment. Right. So he asks me three questions, essentially along the lines of like, how willing am I to do this? And I said, I'm whatever it takes. I don't care what it takes. I'll do it. I'm committed. I'm home. I don't care. I want to stay sober. He said, okay. Uh, he said, show up to a coffee commitment in the middle of some guy's garage an hour away at 5.30 a.m. on Saturday morning. So, All right, I guess this is what we're doing. So 5 a.m. Saturday morning, I get in my car, I drive to this guy's house. And when I walk in, the first thing he says, holy shit, you showed up. Um, had no expectations showing up. And he says, you know, I asked a bunch of guys to come to this and half of them didn't, half of them went one time and that's it. Uh, I come to find out later, my now sponsor got sober at 20 years old. Um, as crazy as that sounds, he got sober at 20 and he just celebrated his 28th year of sobriety, which is, which for me, like that was no coincidence um, that that happened. He wasn't even supposed to be at that meeting and he was. Um, but, you know, obviously there's a lot of trials and error or trial and error going into this thing so young. Um, I made the decision to go back to school, which ultimately was dumb. So I moved back into school uh, on January 28th, and I lasted a total of three weeks before kind of that FOMO, that fear of missing out, that just overwhelmed me. Um, and I was on the phone with Chris a lot during that time, actually. We would always check in. Uh, we'd talk to one another. I heard a lot about Ben's golf game, which was good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, Plugging in was definitely hard because a lot of times in the rooms, you'll see guys who are older, right? And they have responsibilities, they're married, they have kids. Um, and it's hard to connect with them. As hard as I tried, and I consider myself a pretty personable guy, um, it is still hard, right? Because I still want, you know, those, those friends who are younger, I want those 20 year old guys I can say, let's go play basketball, let's go do something, let's you know, hang out, watch a basketball game or whatever it is. Um, it's still hard to do that. Right, because not a lot of people get this thing and are committed to this thing so young. I think it's like under one percent stay sober the first time on the point. Um, but recently, in the last few months, and actually how I ended up getting my job, I began working with this networking in a town nearby me, and a lot of the people who were there were young. Um, so the first couple of times I went, I was like, you know, wow, this guy's like 22, 24, 28, like younger guys. And I said, after one meeting, I just went up. I was like, you know, you guys got this thing so young, like whatever. They're like, all right, yo, come play basketball with us. And they immediately threw me into the group. No hesitation. 
Um, and from there, this kind of sparked this whole network where now we have guys in California. I'm going out to California next month. Um, we have guys all over the country. And at any time of the day, I can call one of these guys and they'll answer and they'll say, I got an answer. If I don't have an answer, I'll give you someone's number who does. Um, so that for me affirmed that I made the right call. Right? I wasn't a loner anymore. I had my network and I finally was able to really start to grow without this fear that was overwhelming me for the first 120 days of my sobriety. That's awesome, Dan. Um, and I think that community, that sense of fellowship, regardless of the program that you're in, uh, because our, our listeners are part of many different types of programs of recovery, that fellowship is so key and essential. Um, at least it is for my program, you know, um, and I hear that it's really a part of yours as well. So, you know, we really like to focus on those in early recovery. So being someone in early recovery, uh, with that hat of being someone who helps people get into early recovery, what's one piece of advice you would give our listeners as they travel down this road of recovery? So the first time I ever actually sat in a few meetings without my sponsor in my first 90 days of recovery, um, every time I shared, the old timers would say, you know, shut up and listen. Like until you got 90 days, shut up and listen. And I was like, how is this guy telling me to shut up and listen? Me to shut up. <laughs> but I actually did. Uh, I, you know, I shut up and listened. Um, and there was not really a resentment after I really started to listen. Um, because I realized after the first few meetings of me not sharing and just listening to what everybody else had to say, I don't really know anything about this program. I don't really know anything about life. And these guys do, these guys have lived it and they've experienced it. Now, of course, obviously if I had an urge to drink or something, I would share. And you know, that's a lot different than just sharing on what you know about the book. Um, but when I sat down and really listened to what these, these men were saying and actually took what they were saying into consideration, I used to bring a notebook and every time I heard a really good line, I'd write it down and I would go back and I'd read through them after the meeting, like all of them would say, you know, these guys actually know what they're talking about. Like, this has been practiced, right? This isn't off the cuff. They've, they've had this ready. Um, so my advice to someone who's coming on into early sobriety, you know, just listen and be open-minded. Um, these people want to help you. They don't want to hurt you. No one's out to get you in this program. And by you putting out your hand and asking for help, it benefits every other person in the room sobriety. Um, that's, that was a really hard concept for me to understand because my sponsor used to always say, you're helping me more than I can ever help you. I was like, dude, you're saving my life here. Like, what are you talking about? And he said to me one time, he's like, you're going to understand later on. And so when I started working with people and hearing from the parents and hearing from you know, the people who are struggling, I saw that both sides of the, um, both sides of the spectrum, I saw the people who were suffering, dying, you know, people get on the phone and next time you call them, they're dead. And then I also saw the recovery side where the people that I was sending to treatment are calling me and saying, dude, I got 30 days sober. I got 60 days sober. Like, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. And after seeing that and being able to help other people who have the same thing that I have, that was the biggest contributor to my recovery. Um, you know, that and watching that it's possible, th those things, you know, you can't replace. There's no medicine for this, this disease, unfortunately. 
um, something better than medicine and you don't have to pay for it. Um, you know, but yeah, my advice would be listen, be open-minded, get a network, huge, get a network right away, get a sponsor. Um, and don't think this defines you, right? Alcoholism isn't who you are. It's something you have. That's all it is. It's something that you have. Danny, you know, before we wrap up here, I just got to say, you know, I've, I've admired you since rehab, since, you know, you demolished Chris on the basketball court because he's old. Um, but no, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I, I have just watching you grow has been one of the, you know, it, and we haven't been in, you know, tremendous contact in the last couple of months, but looking at where you were and looking at where you are now is really one of the inspirations for me. And you, it's funny, you're one of the people that reminds me of me because I'm, I'm always told in the rooms that, that I'm the enthusiastic one. Well, seeing your enthusiasm is infectious. And, and I, you know, I, there's just so much of your story that I relate to and the ways that we're alike, you know, so much so that sometimes, you know, medical facilities switch up medications when they shouldn't, but that's another, that's another podcast. <laughs> but, but I, I just, you know, I want to keep, just keep encouraging you to keep on doing the good work and, you know, keep taking care of yourself, you know, and, and stay strong in your recovery and, you know, just all the best, brother. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Absolutely, Dan. I know Chris and I echo that. And uh, it's been a real pleasure getting to see you and having you on the show. Um, I think that you brought some great advice for our listeners. And uh, like Ben said, it is uh, really good to see how well you're doing. Have a good night, man. Thank you, guys. I love you guys. It was so great seeing Dan, wasn't it? Yeah, it's amazing uh, how young he is and how long it took us to get to that point. Honestly. Oh, I know. Right? Absolutely. And imagine how much, I mean, I know it's pointless to do this, but imagine where we would be if we found that knowledge, you know, when we were 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't ready at 20. I didn't, I didn't know I was ready. I was ready at 36, but you know, <laughs> it's, you know, it, like seeing his enthusiasm is, it, it's, it's a great thing to see that he, that, you know, call it pink cloud, call it whatever you want. It's somebody who who gets it and, and is, you know, living it every single day, and that that's all you can ask, you know, that, you know, for for a, a fellow uh, member. Of I this like fellowship. how he's also being very fluid with his uh, recovery. So you know, he was going to go to law school. He was in uh, a very good school in New York, and you know, through this process, he found something that he loved. He's helping people get into treatment and he's adjusting his life accordingly. And with that, it's helping him stay sober. So I, I, you know, praise him for that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great thing to see, you know, when you, when I found, you know, recovery and as I went through it, every, you know, it was, it was not easy at the beginning making decisions. Wasn't easy at the beginning. Was I doing the right thing? And, you know, eventually, you know, just a, a little bit, you know, more, clear level-headed thought comes about and and those you can weigh those things you can weigh putting school on the back burner or you know lowering their temperature if you will so that you can pursue something and and to see him get into this has uh, been a great thing to see yeah and he's doing such great work too you know chris you you mentioned it this is 
in a way helping him stay sober and he's helping so many people across the country and hearing him have stories of people that come back 30, 60, 90 days later that are thanking him for saving his life. You know, it's, it's just absolutely wonderful. Awesome. Well, boys, it was a great episode tonight. Um, and, uh, as always, Tonight's episode is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who will pick up for the first time tonight. Have a great night, boys. Have a great night. night. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to SoberSolutionsPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.